Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the eighth in our series of Data Bytes events, Getting Things Done with Data in Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government on Data and Digital Government, and we're delighted to welcome so many of you tonight, uh, very kindly supported this evening by ADR UK, Administrative Data Research UK. Um, full disclosure, I sit on their Research Commissioning Board. Very good to be open about these things when we're talking about data. Um, a bit of housekeeping before we get underway properly. Uh, first of all, we are on the record this evening, and we are being live streamed, so hello if you're watching us from home. We are tweeting, so the hashtag is IFGDataBytes, and you can also follow at IFGEvents. And for those of you in the room, um, you're able to get on the Wi-Fi using the details up there, IFG Internet Hotspot, and the password is Institute123. Should there be a fire alarm, there is not a planned drill, um, we would ask that you follow IFG staff out of the building and head for the statue of George VI. Very, very specifically George VI. Not the statue of King George V. And definitely not the statue of King Edward VIII. To be honest, if you end up congregating under that, something's gone very badly wrong with our evacuation procedure because the only statue of King Edward VIII is in Aberystwyth. <laughs> if we have a medical emergency, please do clear the room uh, while we attend to the situation. So, hands up if you've never been to Databytes before. This is your first time. Welcome. Thank you for coming. And hands up if you have been before. We're obviously doing something right, that's encouraging. Um, obviously, quite a lot has happened um, since we last met, which was three months ago. Um, on the very day that we had the last data bytes, there was yet another ministerial resignation. Here's our famous chart showing you how many went under Blair, Brown and Cameron. Then we had the Ther Theresa May era, quite a lot going on there. But Boris Johnson even made it to four just at the start of the election campaign. You can see there in the bottom left as Alan Cairns resigned as Wales Secretary. Um, that was at the start of the campaign, of course, early December brought the general election. Uh, what you can see here, these are all of the seats that those parties held after the 2017 election. The ones with the biggest majority on the left, the smallest majority on the right, and this is what then happened to those seats during the election. You can see lots of blues popping up in, in Labour, sort of getting as far as Lee, but only one Labour gain from the Conservatives, so quite a comprehensive victory for the Conservatives in that election, which seemed to come as a surprise to a lot of commentators, despite the fact that the polls were actually pretty close. You can see what the pollsters were predicting for vote share for the Lib Dems, for Labour, and for the Conservatives, and if we actually put the result in, you can see that they were pretty close on the whole. And either way, that sort of big Conservative victory means that we are not really used to majority government anymore. This is what happened after the 2017 election. Conservatives just over the majority line with the help of the DUP. By the end of that parliament, well, a lot happened during that parliament. We think more changes of allegiance by MPs since 1886. But now, of course, we're very firmly in majority territory with the Conservatives comfortably over that line. And with lots of big plans to get Brexit done, there's still a long way to go on that. Lots of things around infrastructure and levelling up the country, but also lots um, in terms of reforming the civil service as well. And of course, we're expecting a reshuffle at some point over the next week or so. And um, we've seen quite a few of those already. These are all the ministers that were appointed by Theresa May or David Cameron, who are still in the same post. Three quarters of all ministers, those pinks you can see there, have actually been appointed by Boris Johnson. And in fact, one in ten of them that we're highlighting there 
have only been in post since December. So that might make it a little bit more difficult for governments to get everything done as people adjust to their new ministers and to their new departments. Now, government and politics has been very busy, so has the Institute for Government. A couple of weeks ago, we launched our latest Whitehall Monitor report, which looks at the size, shape, and performance of government. You can access it there. S more than 60 charts, which I'm not going to run through in the next few minutes, uh, on everything from the size of the civil service to the sort of skills that civil servants have and what professions uh, they belong to. Um, you can see from that chart that although we tend to think of the civil service as lots of people in buildings not very far from this one, more than half actually work in operational delivery. And uh, just to highlight, those are the policy people, project delivery people, digital people, science and engineering people, or in short, the misfits and weirdos that you can already <laughs> find in government. Uh, one final chart uh, from the report just to show you. Um, this is showing what happened to freedom of information requests uh, since 2005. This year is the 20th anniversary of the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA for short, and you can see all of those blues are where departments have been granting more than half of the requests they, they receive. All of the pinks are where they're granting less than that. So the more closed departments are, the more pinks, and you can see that that's sort of increased over time. So FOIA and loathing in SW1. I could keep going, I will spare you. Um, so a very quick introduction to what we're doing tonight and why we're doing this. Um, this is our eighth Data Bytes event, and we hope to bring together different data communities from across government, show leaders and people working in different parts of government what better data can actually mean and do, um, but also put some really good practice and interesting projects on the record. Uh, this is how tonight is going to work. You're going to see four presentations on a variety of data projects in government. Each speaker will have eight minutes to present, yes, eight minutes. You can see that there is a timer uh, over there, which we will be trying to stick to. And the reason that we've got eight minutes is based on a very bad joke, of course it is. There are eight bits in a byte, hence there are eight minutes in a data byte. And therefore the number eight is very special to us this evening. That will be followed by eight minutes of Q&A. And again, we will have that timer going as soon as the first question is asked. So you're also subject to the timer. So keep your questions nice and sharp and short. And then once we've had the eight minutes presentation, eight minutes of questions, we will then move on to the next speaker. If you want to access uh, previous events, you can go to that link. But never mind previous events, who are we listening to tonight? First of all, we'll have Marcus Bell from the Cabinet Office from the Race Disparity Unit, who'll be talking about how data transparency might be able to help tackle inequality. We'll then hear from Stan Gilmore, the Head of Public Protection at Thames Valley Police, about how combined data can help with early intervention and prevention. We'll then have Anna Powell-Smith looking at missing numbers, the data government doesn't collect. It's going to be a, a good job to keep that into eight minutes, given how much data is not there at the moment. And finally, we'll be hearing from Dr. Steve Lorimer from DCMS, uh, looking at how big the challenge is in terms of sharing data across government. Uh, we're always looking for people to speak at, pre at next events. Uh, the next one will be the first Wednesday of each month as we go forward through 2020, so the 4th of March. If you would be interested in pitching a presentation or know somebody who should, get in touch with me. If, like ADR have very kindly done this evening, you would like to support an event in the series, we do look for supporters to keep the series going, please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. If tonight isn't enough data for you, shameless plug, if you like data visualization and stuff about data in government, I do a weekly newsletter. It's called Warning Graphic Content. I wouldn't type that into Google. 
I would instead um, go to the Twitter page there and sign up from that. Once we've got through all of this evening's presentations, please do join us on the landing uh, for drinks and nibbles. And we will also then head to the London Beer House afterwards. You can see the map here. And just to complete the statue theme, you will walk past the Edward VII <laughs> Memorial statue. So without further ado, my eight minutes are up. And I'd like to welcome our first speaker to the stage. And tonight, that is Marcus. Okay, thank, thank you very much, and um, thank you very much for that introduction. As Gavin said, I'm from the Cabinet Office, which, according to his infographic, is possibly about FOIs, is possibly the most untransparent department in government. Uh, but nevertheless, I've been leading a data project in the Cabinet Office for the last three years called the Race Disparity Audit. And what I'm going to talk about is the main product of the Race Disparity Audit, which is a government website called Ethnicity Facts and Figures. So it is a live site. So if you want to look at it on smartphone as I'm talking, you're very welcome to do so. We tried to make it easy to use on mobile so you can uh, look at it as we're, we're talking. Um, so I'm going to try and answer three questions. Um, so what is Ethnicity Facts and Figures? Why is it interesting? And what do we learn by doing it? Um, so, uh, as I said, it's a website, um, and it's a website the purpose of which is to publish government data about ethnic disparities. So that's um, differences of treatment or outcome which affect people of different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and I, I think the um, uh, one point I want to make is that th this was something we did at grand scale. So it was about all the issues over on the left-hand side of the page. So the, um, the current version of the website covers 176 different topics. So across education, housing, uh, culture, health, uh, a very large number of things. Um, uh, in terms of what the data actually covers, um, so it's, it's primarily about public service outcomes, so um, about uh, policing, healthcare, education outcomes. Uh, we break down all the data by 18 different uh, ethnicity categories, plus one, that's the unknown one, which is the kind of standard uh, ONS way of doing things. So that's basically what it covers. Um, why is it interesting? So I think there are two reasons why it's interesting. Uh, one is because, um, and I've just some data to show you over the next three or four slides, this is a data event. Um, uh, so I think the first thing is it tells us quite a lot of things about the UK that we didn't know. Um, so um, this uh, chart is about uh, attainment eight, which is a measure of secondary school performance. Uh, and I think the, uh, the data and the website breaks it down by all the factors over on the left-hand side. Uh, and I think the interesting thing about it is, first of all, there are some significant differences ethnic groups in terms of their secondary school attainment, many of which are quite well, well known. Uh, what's even more interesting is how much those vary by location. So we get really, really different outcomes for different ethnic groups in different places. And there's a nice clickable table on the website. So if you want to rank uh, where is the area in the country where Asian people get the worst educational outcomes, it'll tell you. Um, so uh, that's one example. Um, another issue that's covered is stop and search, which is a very controversial issue because as is widely known, black people are much more likely to be stopped and searched. Um, than white people by the police, uh, and that's sort of uh, borne out by the data. So on the right-hand side, we've got trend data about what's been happening with stop and search. So stop and search rates for everyone have been falling. Uh, the rate for black people has been falling less slowly than for everyone else. So you're still more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black. Uh, but again, uh, one very interesting aspect of the data around this issue is the geographical variation, point I'll come back to at the end, because there are huge differences in stop and search rates in different constabulary areas. And again, there's a, there's a nice clickable table so you can uh, you can look through that. Um, final example I just wanted to um, give you, and this is really to emphasize a point, is that um, uh, this site is not about ethnic minorities, it's about the whole population. So it covers white British people as well as ethnic minorities. Uh, and some of the measures that we look at, some of the 176, is actually white British people who are getting the worst outcomes. So that's um, 
Uh, this is about smoking prevalence among teenagers, this particular one, where you'll see the white British line is the worst. So I'm just uh, putting that up to make, uh, make that particular point. So um, interesting because I think it told us some things about the UK that we didn't know, and it's interesting that almost all the data on the site was in the public domain before. It was just incredibly hard to find and even harder to use. So the department would say they'd put something in the public domain, and actually it was in a CSV file buried five clicks deep on a, on a website and really hard to use. So I think what, we didn't publish new data exactly, but we tried to make it easier to use and more accessible. Um, Final point um, uh, just about the data is that um, because it's all open data and you can download all of it, including all the underlying data, you can do some interesting things with it. So this is a chart that uh, somebody else did, oh, whoops, uh, not us, um, uh, which is about uh, essentially how representative police forces are of the local population. Um, so we know that um, in general um, the police are not representative, fully representative of the ethnic minority population. Uh, we also know that some police forces like the Met um, have a lot more ethnic minority uh, officers than others. But what this chart does allows you to compare the num number of police officers from an ethnic minority with the uh, local ethnic minority population. So this tells you how representative the police force are of the local population. If you drew a line um, uh, of you know, uh, direct proportionality, I think what you'd find is that all of the forces are way below it. So it's just an example of what you can do with our, with our data, because as I say, someone else did that one. Um, so, uh, interesting because it tells you some things about the UK. I think it was also interesting because of um, how we did it, because I think we did it rather differently from the way these things are normally done in government. So, just a few things to draw attention to. So, one was, this was a data-first approach to driving change. So, normally, when government decides it wants to influence something, it publishes a strategy document or a white paper, so it does a sort of policy thing. Uh, this was a data thing, uh, and there, there was some policy that flowed from the audit, but it came afterwards. So, we kind of... Uh, put all the data out there and provide all the data before kind of moving on to the, the policy phase. I think the second thing is that um, it was delivered by a startup team in the Cabinet Office. It wasn't done by an existing structure in government. It was done by a team which started literally from scratch. So week one there was one person, week two there were two people, and it kind of build, built from there. So it was a, was a proper startup. I think the third one, is, it was a proper multidisciplinary team. So the core of the team were in our data and digital people with the kind of leveling of policy people all working very closely together and that's not unique but it's still fairly unusual in Whitehall I would say uh, where typically the policy people are close to the minister and the data people are often in a different town <laughs> and get instructions by, uh, by email so we didn't do things that way. Um, fourth thing I think that was interesting was that the scope of it was vast and a bit daunting and that in principle it was about everything <laughs> um, and uh, so we've got 176 topics at the moment and we're still adding uh, more and have quite a long way to go, I think, before we're finished. Uh, and I think finally, <coughs> it was based on um, very extensive user research with the public, given that this topic is quite contentious and controversial, um, uh, and we wanted to find out what the public thought about these issues and what information they really wanted to find. Uh, so uh, Gavin mentioned data visualization. One of my regrets about the process is that we, uh, we dreamt up some beautiful data visualizations, you know, maps and uh, graphics and so on which absolutely bond with the public who just didn't understand them. So we had to put them all in the bin, which is very sad. Um, and the, the website, if you look at it, is very clean and simple and uh, straightforwardly presented, but really with that kind of public communication uh, aspect in mind. Um, so what did we learn from doing this? And I've got just over a minute left. Um, so a few things. Um, so I think we learned quite a lot about ethnicity in the UK as a result of doing this, this process. And... Uh, I think that in particular the three points that I put on the slide, so the extent of geographical variation that there is in terms of ethnic minority experiences, which is important because it's a, um, uh, an antidote to kind of generalizations, if you like, that um, you know, um, 
uh, racism affects everyone everywhere in the same way, you know, because I think if it did, you wouldn't get quite so much geographical variation. Uh, change over time, so there's quite a lot of positive change in terms of um, uh, ethnic minority outcomes on some measures. Uh, some, er some other areas where there's no change at all, and again, that's, that's a sort of uh, interesting thing. And I think finally, um, how different the outcomes are for different ethnic groups. So uh, for groups like, for example, Indians, actually uh, outcomes are better than white British uh, on a lot of the measures, though that's not true uh, everywhere. Uh, second point, uh, which you may hear more about later, uh, is there are no agreed standards <laughs> around ethnicity classification in government. And that's a real problem when you're trying to br bring together lots of different data and particularly to use it and analyze it. So that's obviously something we've been pushing for since with, with ONS. Um, so departments defined ethnicity in very different ways and collected uh, data that was very hard to combine. Uh, there are loads of data gaps. I won't labor that point because that will be uh, familiar, but a very long list of them. Uh, fourth point, which I think will be an interesting uh, counterpoint to I think what Anna is going to talk to you about later, because clearly there's lots of data that government doesn't collect, but what struck us by doing this was how much data government collects and then doesn't use. So it's quite a common experience for us talking to other government departments that they would be astonished at their own data. Uh, and we thought, why are you telling us you never look at your own data? Um, uh, but that was, I think, a striking point. Uh, finally, um, in terms of the method, uh, I think we found that focusing on data particularly in a controversial area like our outcomes different for black and white people, was quite a, way of building quite a good way of building trust and of building consensus about what needs to be done because it means essentially we spent a year trying to be clear about what the data was actually saying uh, and what the evidence was before you know, moving on to think about what might be done with it. So I think that was quite an effective way. And I think my final point is that I think the method is replicable as in you could do something like this about uh, other issues that government happens to be interested in. There, that's the end. Fantastic. Thank you, Marcus. So, time for questions. As I said, we will start the timer as soon as the first question uh, is started. Uh, there will be somebody bringing a mic round. Do tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, remember, we are on the record, and please do keep your questions short, as we do only have eight minutes. I'll take questions in batches of two or three. So, who would like to ask a question in the first round of questions? got one down here, we've got one there. Let's start with those two. Hi. Um, uh, you mentioned at the end the difficulty of, of cleaning the data, but I'm just interested if you could elaborate a bit more on that. Like, how did, you, how did you decide who is Asian? I always have this argument with people in my parents' generation, for example. How, how do we decide what's Like, you know, who is, like, what, what does Asian mean? Because I think it means something very different to people in my generation well, to people in my parents' what, generation. What, 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 one of the issues with, um, ethnicity data, it's all based on self-reporting. So you, your ethnicity is what you say it is, and that's, that's all the data can tell you. So it, it's utterly dependent on uh, which box people tick. Uh, one of the things that we found while we were doing the work was that the, um, so this isn't an answer to your question, but it might shed some light on it. The, um, the response rate um, on different issues and in different departments was utterly different. Uh, and we found that um, part of that was about the design of the form and the way that the question was asked uh, and the way that the thing appeared online um, and the additional information that you were provided about things like anonymization and so on. So again, we've been pressing for a, a more standardized approach on that because I think we found that certain ways of asking the question, certain ways of designing the form had a much better response rate than, uh, than others. So um, we, we didn't, um, obviously we, we didn't define Asian. That was entirely for the respondent to, to decide that. But I think what, one interesting thing we found was about the public's uh, view about language around this issue, which is clearly a sensitive subject. Um, and and one, one very clear message from the user research was that the public do not understand the term BAME 
um, you know, black and minority ethnics. So we, we talked to hundreds of people about that. We found one person who understood what it meant. Um, uh, and they proved on closer inspection to be a civil servant. Um, uh, so um, for, for that reason, um, uh, our site only uses the term ethnic minority rather than babe, but that's, that's not because not we're making a kind of principled judgment about what is the correct term. That's just uh, about uh, communication with, with users and about what, they, what term they actually understood. I'm going to have to go back and check our charts now. Um, so we've got a question there, and then we've got another one uh, down the front here. Um, Swelang Harris from the Legal Education Foundation. Thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. Uh, there was a report written, uh, researched and written by the Open Data Institute, funded by the Legal Education Foundation, and uh, published last week, looking at protected characteristics and collecting data to monitor equalities. And I was curious whether, um, given the experience of this project, you felt there was uh, momentum or a shifting culture in terms of collecting these data and having a more standardised or you know harmonised standard so that uh, the exercise could be enhanced in the future. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, I think there is. I mean, certainly on ethnicity, but also more widely. Um, uh, I think partly because we've done what we've done, so I think people dealing with with other issues have kind of thought, well, would it be good to have a you know kind of gender facts and figures or, or whatever. Um, to, kind of, to kind of do some of the same things. So, um, so you, yes, I think there is interest in it. And um, I, I think perhaps another, another um, aspect of our experience that's worth sharing is that um, there was a lot of foreboding in government before we published all this data about what would happen when it went out there. Um, so, you know, would it be very controversial? Would it upset people? Would it be weaponized by racists and so on? None of those things happened. Uh, and I would say um, uh, part of that was because of the volume of data that we put out there, because you know, there, there was so much um, anyone seeking to make a kind of easy generalization about what it all meant would just be defeated by the uh, extent of it. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, people who want to say simple things about race and ethnicity don't really find much support for it in the four terabytes of data that we publish. Um. Hi. Um, you were just saying that um, you found that you had different responses from people um, based on how the form was designed. I just wondered if you could share anything around that because I'm designing a form to ask an ethnicity question right now. <laughs> um, so so I, th I think it was, well, um, partly it was kind of visual, so some forms were just kind of easier to relate to visually than others, but I think mainly it was about the, uh, the, the extra information that was provided and what was said about why the information was being collected. Because uh, some people are nervous about, um, uh, you know, ticking the ethnicity box because they worry it'll... Uh, count against them in some way or be used in a, in, in a way that they wouldn't be comfortable with. So um, reassurance about things like anonymization and about why the information, clear, clear information about why the information is being collected is I think the, uh, the best thing. <clears throat> Let's take another round of questions. Who'd like to go next? Um, we've got one there, one there and one there and I reckon we can get through all three. Go for it. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Rosie from the Government Equalities Office. Uh, I was going to ask about, you said about some of the issues of uh, mismatched categories across government departments and the kind of tendency to go towards the ONS definitions. Uh, I know that with the census coming up in 2021, they're going to kind of reconsider those ethnicity options. Do you think it's a good idea for departments to try and use a consistent system or do you think that it's better for departments to kind of uh, define their terms on a kind of case-by-case -case basis on what they're measuring? Um, I, th I think standardization is essential. Um, and and uh, w w when you get on to doing uh, really interesting things with this data, like linking different data sets and analyzing them, it's impossible if you're using 
basically different currencies. Um, so, so, so I think it is essential, and the fact that we have the census soon, uh, which will, you know, whether we like it or not, kind of set, set, the, set the pattern for you know, what, what currencies are used by, by whom for the next, years, next 10 years is an important opportunity to, uh, to get it right. Um, but the, yeah, the, the, that, that, was, that was one of the biggest problems we had on the entire project was, was you know, different terms, um, you know, even down to things like capitalization or not capitalization and things like that in terms of uh, how people collected data. It's a problem. Um, and the sort of front row there. Hi, uh, Paul Jackson from ADR UK. Have you controlled for social economic class in some of your um, products and, and uh, figures? And if you have, uh, how does it change the picture of what you're observing? Right, and that, 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 that's a really important question. And um, uh, in terms of the data that we publish on the website, the short answer is no, but I'll explain why in a second. Uh, in terms of the additional analysis that we've done uh, almost always. Um, so uh, I, mean, I, I think the key point is that raw ethnicity data looks very different once you've uh, controlled for confounding variables. And a lot of you know, what looks like a, a, a big difference by ethnicity uh, is actually driven by age, you know, the age profile of the underlying population uh, or income or something else. So, so what appears to be an ethnic disparity, if you, if you do a proper regression, um, uh, is, is actually about something else. But we, we made a decision about how to present the data on the site based on user research around that. Uh, because we, we, we talked to the public about, we didn't use the term regression analysis, but about uh, controlling for various variables. And the reaction we got from most people was um, that that sounded to them like cooking the data. Uh, and they had, you know, we, we picked up quite low levels of trust, I would say, in government data uh, in the user research. So we made a decision that we would, the, the headline data we would publish would be the raw data. Uh, but where the, where the actual picture was significantly different, we, we would provide quite a lot of additional contextual information. So if you look at um, our individual pages about things like education, for example, it will start by with the kind of headline data about how attainment varies by ethnicity. But there will then be additional information about uh, geography, occupational group, um, age, and all the other relevant confounding. You know, so we've tried to give people all the information, uh, but, but, but while presenting uh, clear, raw data. And we'll take the question over there. As Thank well. you. Um, Helen Roberts, National Audit Office. Um, I was just interested on the point around departments not always knowing what their own data tells them or not necessarily using it. I'm not saying which ones. Well, no, of course. <laughs> um, but I was just wondering, do you think having seen the power of the their own data, their attitudes have changed? Or do you think there's more that needs to be done to encourage that? Um, I think there's a lot more that can be done to encourage that. But I think that there are some... Uh, encouraging signs of change uh, and I think what, what, what we found is that um, uh, I think some departments uh, did change the way that they used ethnicity data quite significantly as a result of this and took it quite, quite a lot more seriously others perhaps did not um, so I think um, I think there's been some progress for sure uh, but quite a lot more to do uh, and I think it, there's an underlying issue which I, I mean, I've heard discussed at this event before which is about the the data literacy of policy people which is and kind of addressing that as kind of a precondition for making progress. And I, I feel entitled to be a bit messianic about that because I am a policy person, even though I'm leading a primarily a data project. Excellent. We'll have to ask you for tips on how to do that uh, across government. Um, Marcus, thank you very much indeed. And next up, we have Stan. Thank you. Um, so I've got a, a few slides at the start. Some of the clever ones said start with why. So I'm going to 
introduce why we're interested in this, and then I'll dwell a little bit around the data itself. Um, so there's a, a few quotes in the, in the next couple of slides. This is Darren McGarvey. He talks about the impact of stress, and, and I'll talk about stress in terms of trauma and, uh, and the, you know, where stress comes from uh, as I go through the presentation. But it's the, it's the context of stress and how that affects other issues. We've already seen teenage smoking statistics, and I'll maybe touch on that as I go through as well, because stress and trauma uh, affects contact with criminal justice. It affects other issues around the public sector as well. Um, in the PHE, Public Health England, um, preventing serious violence uh, reports from last year, uh, they made it very clear that interventions to prevent violence, especially in early childhood, uh, bear the most uh, outcome. So from a public health perspective, talking about reducing serious violence, there's a real focus on early intervention. And in uh, Scotland, uh, the NHS education uh, people have come up with a framework around trauma-informed practice. Similar story again, uh, trauma widespread throughout society. Uh, from the data we found at clusters, and that's data reproduced and replicated across the world. Trauma clusters in individuals, in families, in neighborhoods, in organizations. Um, and understanding the impact of trauma, especially trauma that occurs in early childhood, can tell us something about where our services need to work together better and indeed where they might need to be focused upon. Uh, reason behind that, um, we can see that uh, adverse childhood experiences and these bars are a count of numbers of adverse childhood experiences, so bad things that happen to children in their early years, abuse and neglect and, and family disorder. Uh, the more adverse childhood experiences, ACEs if you will, then the greater the correlation and this is not deterministic, this works at a population level, but the more correlation between uh, increasing number of adverse childhood experiences and things like binge drinking, cannabis use, crack and heroin use, violence victimization, violence perpetration, and indeed incarceration. Um, so if we can do something around adverse childhood experiences and the circumstances through which they are born, then we can perhaps reduce binge drinking, cannabis use, crack and heroin use, violence victimization, perpetration, and incarceration by some fairly big numbers. Um, so that's the promise of bringing data together. Um, and uh, something that's been highlighted in a number of uh, reports, and this one's from the Home Office, the Serious Violence Strategy. Individual risk factors on the left-hand side there when you ask people in a room what those risk factors are, they'll all tell you because they're not really a surprise. But this is 30 years of research from criminologists, psychologists, medical doctors, etc. But it's come up and, uh, with results that tell you childhood abuse and neglect, so adversity in childhood. Impulsivity, so lack of self-control, a lack of thought about the consequences of your actions. Um, you know, these risk factors are all indicative of a greater likelihood in this case, to be involved in serious violence, but they are indeed risk factors for a range of uh, criminal justice-involved circumstances. And they link into adverse community environments as well. So it's not just experiences that you might have as an individual. It's the experience that you have in the environment that you live within. So poverty, discrimination, uh, community disruption, violence, etc., within your community has an impact uh, on the stress and on the trauma that you uh, experience. So home office research, as I've said, has come up with similar 
uh, results uh, across a number of years in the way that we need to identify and indeed act against these experiences and whether that's in primary prevention, so universal type prevention, in secondary prevention, those that are beginning to come into contact with criminal justice, or in tertiary prevention, those that are indeed heavily embedded in crime and, and disorder. And the public health approach to doing that is pretty well spelt out now as well in a succession of uh, documents from Public Health England and indeed the College of Policing. Uh, so the project that we are involved with, and this is a list from uh, the PHE Serious Violence Strategy, is to do just this. Identify those data that might give us the best understanding of where early intervention uh, might be of the most use. Um, and we have a number of projects uh, in Thames Valley underway to do just that. And the one I'll focus in is the Thames Valley Together project. Uh, second to the bottom there. And a wide range of academic and other partners that are helping us think through the kind of things that Marcus discussed earlier about the ethical use of this, the problems of uh, ethics, privacy, and bias that come into uh, play when you start combining data in the way that we are uh, researching because this is not operational at this stage, it's still a research project. Although we can see things coming out of it and uh, we can uh, um, start to look at that in terms of our strategy, it has not yet been operationalized. So what does it tell us then? Back to the uh, diagram I showed you before in the pairs of ACEs, this is uh, crime deprivation in this uh, unitary authority area. The red areas are those that are most uh, deprived. When we start to put our data on it, we can start to identify those families because we can identify a family from our data, not just a household. We can identify those families that are most um, uh, impacted by adverse childhood experiences. And we can look to those that are clustering in environments that are most impacted upon by, uh, by serious violence or crime. We can then look behind those data and we can look at the networks, uh, the social networks that sit behind these uh, uh, nodes and we can start to identify where we might find those positive preventive factors. So if we imagine that the red are involved uh, with criminal justice and the green are not, well the blue might start to identify those protective factors that are keeping those that are suffering similar levels of adversity uh, out of criminal justice involvement. So we can start to identify not just the risk factors but the positive preventive factors that might shield people from being criminal justice involved. And we can start to look at, uh, at data. So the misuses of data. Uh, where do we find, where could we find data that would tell us a bit more about a picture than just police data? So a police uh, data feed that tells you about domestic abuse within a family might miss out all of the contextual data, all of the contextual information that might indicate opportunities that were missed to intervene early to prevent these things from happening within a family, within an individual, and within our communities. And the data work that we're looking at is trying to identify that, and this is a mock-up, uh, of where we might indeed be able to go when we bring data together from health, from police, from social care, from charities, and start to identify those adverse childhood experiences uh, as they build up within a family, as they group within networks, uh, the well-being factors that might support people to prevent them from becoming criminal justice involved, and indeed 
those local areas that we may need to focus upon more closely uh, as the uh, adversity builds up in a community and not just a family or, or an individual. There we are. Time for questions, I think. Thank you very much, Stan. <laughs> So again, I'll try to take rounds of two or three. Um, do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. And I think I've got three hands already. That I've got four, so I'll go this one and the two in that row first, and then we'll come to you in the next round. And Feels like an option. anyone else. <laughs> Hello, uh, Tom Rintoul, Social Finance Digital Labs. Um, as we're looking particularly at that prototype on the wall behind you, what can you say about some of the use cases you have in mind? Uh, well, it's, it's entirely possible that uh, we, we'd be able to, through combining the data, identify at a very, er very early stage the preventive factors that might uh, hold a community, hold a family together and out of, of, of crime and, from the slides I showed you earlier, prevent them from, uh, from being susceptible to those health uh, problems as well as wider social problems. So uh, things like this, from your perspective, we'd be able to identify where you might want to put a framework of perhaps community or charity or voluntary services together uh, to provide the kind of care for the needs that we've identified within those communities. That may be mentoring, that may be access to services. It depends what the, those data tell us. So it should be helpful. Uh, then we've got the two questions up there. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, my name is Hoagie Cunningham, working in the Home Office. Um, and I'll, my question is, when you showed the um, uh, social network graph a few slides back, um, including which people were involved in criminality, I think. Say um, that again, sorry. Uh, you have the social network graph, and it also showed things like uh, which people were involved in, in criminality. Yes. Um, where did that data come from? Well, police data. So have well, they been arrested or have they been identified as being involved in crime? But specifically, the, um, the links between the people. Uh, again, that's the combined data. So uh, if somebody's been, for example, stopped in the street, we heard about stop search before, there were three other people, we can identify through our data that they were together with two other people. Do that two or three times and you might say that it was more than just chance and perhaps they're friends. You start to identify other things that might bring them up as family members. Um, so it's, it's the, the power of combined data, but police data's pretty good as well. Oops. Is, it, is, there, and is this sort of brought together on a, on a national level at all, or is this things This that is something that we're doing in Thames Valley uh, at the moment. Um, there are other police forces that are, are looking at the same things, and other uh, areas that are looking at similar things, but this is our project at the moment. Cheers. Uh, on the combined data side, so obviously uh, you're using a lot of police data, and the ways of gathering that are sort of, I imagine, relatively bespoke in the way you would do it. But say, for example, using medical data from the NHS or pensions and uh, benefits data from DWP, obviously these are government agencies that are very careful, particularly in the case of the NHS, with proprietary data, personal data. They don't like to share that stuff unless they've got explicit permission. But also you're dealing with a group of people who have very low trust in institutions. So what's the GDPR perspective on this? How does data ethics work when you're uh, using personal data of people who probably don't trust the police, to put it simply. So there, there are, when we look at who the most trusted are, has the most to lose from this, we often find it's health that have got the most to lose from a lack of trust. So we've gone very much with health uh, protocols around this to say uh, you're, you're the, uh, the team that, uh, we, uh, that I've got the most to lose, so let's focus on keeping your data safe. Um, 
so there are consent issues around it, as we said before, and we're looking at where we've got consent to share data. Uh, we're looking at IG issues, so in between agencies, who's going to uh, share data for what purpose uh, and what those gateways are to share data. Um, but we're also looking ahead to perhaps the duty to share that might come out of any serious violence uh, legislation that's on the horizon as well. So, so this is a, a, an academic piece at the moment. It's not been operationalized. So those questions are still yet to come around privacy, around ethics, not just ethics of using this data, the ethics of not using it, and then the ethics of using it in different scenarios. For example, should we use this in order to decide our uh, resource allocation and what might the data ethics, the wider ethics around that look like. So there's a lot still to be worked through before we operationalize this, um, and not least the information governance, which Thanks. tends to be the sticky part. Great, thank you. <clears throat> and we've got a question uh, there. Um, any other questions uh, we can take now? We've got another one there. Anyone else? <clears throat> yeah, let's go with you and then you. Mark Williams, WPI Economics. What scope can you see for any of this information uh, being made open so that other organizations can try and replicate this work or uh, do things uh, based on, on, on this data? Uh, so part of the work we're doing is to create a framework uh, that people could use and, and replicate. And within that framework comes questions around IG gateways, etc., and what that might look like. Uh, and again, learning from all sorts of organizations that have been through this, because uh, I'm sure Mark has found the same. There's a huge amount of reinventing the wheel that goes on when it comes to sharing information. Um, I haven't read a safeguarding review on, on a death yet that hasn't said you should have shared more information. Um, yet when I ask questions about information sharing, there's a lot of hysteria in the rooms about sharing information. Everyone agrees we should do more. Nobody agrees to do it. Um, so there is a framework we're putting in place that, that might start to provide some stepping stones into that. Um, and from an economic perspective, we're looking at how we might be able to put some costs to late intervention as well. So just from accrued financial terms, you could start to see the cost, the financial cost of late intervention that we all bear, as well as the human cost. Yeah, hi, uh, Joe Dilgood, Data Protection Consultant. It was really just a comment and observation, just in terms of, I used to be a data protection officer for university till December, so we had to deal with these things in terms of the GDPR point mentioned. Consent isn't always necessary to share yeah. personal data. Consent just one of six so-called lawful bases, and the ICO, Information Commissioner's Office, has produced a code of practice basically on data sharing and, and also a blog on it as well, and. If, if, the, if the processing purpose is accurate and clear and you've got a legitimate reason to do so, then yeah. usually you can, for law enforcement purposes, share personal data appropriately. All depends on the processing purpose, uh, but you don't necessarily need a person's consent to do so. That's Thank correct. Um, so, and we spend a lot of time explaining to our partners that consent is but one gateway. Um, but we, neither are we gonna run roughshod over GDPR um, so, you know, we have to get that balance right and make sure that we're sharing data widely enough to be of use, but not too widely so that we start taking advantage of people's liberties. So, it's a very key point for us. Um, we've got one minute. There is time for one more question if somebody wants to squeeze in. I can hold a silence longer than any of you can, honestly. Um, we've got Miranda down here. 
Miranda Sharp, Warden Survey. Um, these, we've done some work on this kind for families, and we found they've got quite a transient relationship with addresses. Um, and I, I just wondered if you wanted to comment a bit about how you, how you track networks and people who move around quite a lot. Okay. So we, um, we restate families. We, we call them a clique because um, family can be a bit misleading when, when you're trying to think about what that looks like. Um, so we restate them every 24 hours so we can look at how families might change within a 24-hour period. So, you know, eldest son moves out, you know, mother remarries, whatever. We know we, we, see, um, we see changes within families and every 24 hours we have a new data feed and it restates those families and how they might have changed. And we do that through our combined data and the relationships that are, you know, identified through those data. Brilliant. And perfectly on time. Stan, thank you very much indeed. Uh, so while we change the slides over, um, back in September 2018, the Institute published uh, a report looking at gaps in government data, and we came up with sort of five things we were particularly interested in, like financial data, outsourcing and contracting data, some data about the civil service. Um, you can obviously read that on our website. Um, we found five I think Anna's going to talk about an awful lot more. Anna. Uh, hello. Um, so this series is about people doing interesting things with data in government. I'm talking about the opposite, which is people not being able to do interesting things because of there not being data. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, by day, I'm a software developer, and by night, I run Missing Numbers. Um, missing Numbers investigates in campaigns to close important gaps in government data. Uh, so the key word there you're all thinking about is important, and what does important mean? We'll come on to that. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about what is a missing number. Um, two massive public policy challenges for the UK where there are incredible amounts of them. Uh, what causes them? How do we end up with them? How can we choose what to measure in a kind of better way that makes more sense? Uh, and finally, what to do when you spot one in your own area. Um, so what is a missing number? Uh, my definition is it's important public data the government does not collect. Sorry, I'm just going to catch up with my slides here. Um, so this could be a statistical series or it can be a data set. Um, but it's different from open data because the point is it's data the government itself doesn't have. And this probably is a bit abstract right now, so what's an example? Ah, sorry, I messed up this now. <laughs> Sorry. I can just use that if that's easier. Sorry about that technological problem. Um, for example, 
if you are the government, you run hospitals and schools and job centres, and all those things provide important public services. One way of knowing if they're failing is to look at the number of complaints about them. If you want to know the number of complaints about a hospital, that is public data, you can go and look at it on the NHS website, it's out there. If you want to know the number of complaints about a school, that is not public data, but the DFB do hold it. They don't release it because it's sort of sensitive, but they do have it internally and they monitor it. If you want to know the number of complaints about a job centre, you cannot find that out and the DWP itself does not know. And I know this because I've FOI'd them and they've told me we do not collect that data ourselves. So essentially central government is not monitoring that in any way. So the first key policy area is land and housing. Um, some missing numbers in land and housing. All of these are things that I care about but that have also been talked about a great deal by independent reviewers, experts in the area. Uh, land ownership concentration, it's not a thing we have any stats on. This is changing in Scotland, where they're starting to look at this more. Um, it's kind of a key important question for climate and housing and wealth and so on. Uh, the rental market, we don't know, for example, the cost of renting in different local authorities over time. That's just not a thing we have data on. Uh, there's a report by the UKSA about this, but nothing has changed. Uh, affordable housing, we don't know how many affordable housing commitments are made in each local authority. And we don't know how many are delivered. It's kind of a fundamental question about the housing market. Uh, and land values. So in the US, we know good stats on land values by county by year. And in the UK, we don't have that at all. The latest stats from 2017, and they've got a big warning at the top saying, do not use for anything except policy appraisal. Um, and this was pointed out by Professor Sir Charles Bean in 2016, who said, we don't have good data on this, and this causes inefficiency, and it you know, messes up the planning regime. Um, social care is another area where we've got lots of missing data. Uh, and there are people in this room who've done good work on this, including the IFG. Um, think tank everyone have done a report on missing data in social care. Um, and the Office for Statistics Regulation have just published a report about the missing data in this area, which includes things like having any meaningful outcomes about whether care is good or not. We know the, we know the people and we know how much is spent, and that's about it. So we don't know whether people are getting good care. We don't know anything about private care outside local authority control we don't know about the value and extent of unpaid care. And this is kind of a key policy area for the whole of the UK. It's one of the biggest issues facing us. Um, so why is it that we end up with missing numbers in these really important policy areas? Uh, I've been studying this, and my conclusions are it's a combination of these factors. Uh, it's not important to the people who have the power to produce the statistics. It's embarrassing sometimes. It's difficult to collect, or all of the above. Um, so in social care, it's genuinely difficult to collect any of this data. Um, and it's also not a huge policy priority, or hasn't been, although that might shift. Um, in land and housing, it's often, it's not that difficult to collect, but it's not necessarily a policy priority. Uh, and there's a fifth reason too, which is um, the stats system in the UK, <laughs> I've lost, I had a flame emoji, it's gone. Um, it's, um, it's been focused on producing independent and accurate data the last 30 years because during the 80s it was not trusted to do that and rightly it's got much better at doing that and it is now well trusted to do that on the whole. However, it also has a statutory responsibility to produce relevant data which is, has been less of a policy priority for them I would say. Um, this is starting to change which is good. Um, so who decides what's important? How should we decide that? And one of the difficult things is it's a, it's a political question to some extent. 
However, there are precedents for doing this. So, um, <laughs> we might say, <laughs> uh, this important data set is more important than, say, knowing what universal credit costs, for example. Um, the criteria that the UKSA used for national statistics when they were saying which of our data sets should be national statistics, i.e. kite marked as being uh, accurate and independent, they had eight criteria which included use to allocate public resources, being of significant public interest, generating regular media reporting, using, uh, being used in PQs or ministerial questions. So we could do the same exercise for data sets that are not collected. Um, are there significant public resources that are not actually being measured at the moment? Um, are there topics of public interest where there isn't good stats, for example, like affordable housing? Um, there are precedents for doing this kind of prioritization exercise we could use. Um, what should we be doing? So in 2016, Professor Sir Charles Dean was commissioned to review the economic statistics, which is wonderful. It's about 400 pages long. It's brilliant. Um, he has recommended doing the same thing for social statistics, and I think that's what we should be doing. Uh, an independent review of the whole area, and in particular focusing on who are the users of these stats. So at the moment, government tends to talk to itself a bit. Can we broaden out what we think of as a user to campaigners, citizens, journalists, startups, and so on? And the second thing I think we should be doing is when we come across these numbers in public life, identify them as such. So specifically call out problem as being about missing data, um, a bigger thing to do. Um, what to do when you spot one? The first thing is actually name it. Uh, the second is tell the Office for Stats Regulation, who are the people whose job it is to think about the public value of stats. They're really responsive, they will talk to you, they're keen to talk to you. Um, and the third thing is get in touch with me because I would like to run some campaigns about specific areas where you know, getting NGOs and think tanks together can make a difference. Um, that's it, thank you. That's the website, and you can sign up for updates on that. Thank you very much indeed, Anna, and sorry for the technical problems um, during that. On the plus side, it's, I discovered I can turn back time, so that's, <laughs> that's something. Um, again, we'll try to take uh, questions in batches of two or three. Um, lots to dig into there. Who would like to go first? Got one question there. Have we got any others in the first round? And we've got another one there. Brilliant. Let's start with those two. Thank you. Uh, hi. Uh, Rosie again from the Government Colleagues Office. Um, I was going to ask about specifically about like, land registry, because I know that it's been talked about a lot about how we don't have data on exactly who owns what land, and it was a whole government uh, labor manifesto priority a while back. Um, do we know for specific groups, I'm thinking like big old institutions like Oxford and Cambridge colleges, do they know what they own? <laughs> do, do, like, in terms of like, tracking what, what land and what buildings are owned, do we know whether people know what they own, as well as us not knowing what they own? Uh, should I touch on that now? Or should I um, up to you. What would you rather do? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I work quite intensively on that topic on a project called Who Owns England, and I also work with the Labour Party on it. Um, the answer is sometimes. So Institutions that are very old often have paper deeds, um, which you know they may or may not have digitised. So some institutions have very good internal ways of um, you know digitising and managing that in GIS. Some don't. It depends on the institution. Um, and that 15% of land is still unregistered. So some of that will be paper deeds, and some of that may well be institutions that have just forgotten they own things. It's quite possible. Um, 
hello, Simon from Registered Dynamics. Um, I wanted to ask a bit more about uh, what, what you consider important or how we identify important. Um, so cats per square kilometer is actually a data set I know quite well. To some people, quite important. Um, but no. clearly also not necessarily a national <laughs> statistic. Where's the middle ground? Like, yeah. where does it go from being uh, uh, not as heavy as national statistic, but something a bit more lightweight, a set of criteria? Do you, do you have one? Um, I think this is a, something we should have a public conversation about. And I think um, probably the UK Stats Authority should lead that. So what are the right criteria for thinking something is important? And who do you talk to to figure out whose views matter? Um, and that's not a question there's a right answer to at this point, but I think we should look at how other countries do it. Um, so I know other countries have a lot more resources around this. Um, and I think we should be... Uh, so the, there was a select committee review of the governance of the stat system last summer, and they talked about data gaps as a priority and about UKSA needing to talk to a broader range of users to figure out what the gaps were. So I would say UKSA should lead this, they should talk to a wider range of people about what they think is important and then base it on those criteria. But I think at the moment, the views of government are overrepresented and the views of campaigners, journalists, the public, business are probably underrepresented in that process. Great. Next round of questions. We've got one there and one there. So let's go with those two next. Hi. Hi. Will you? Sorry. Uh, Emma Gordon, uh, ADI UK. Uh, do you know of any other country that publishes uh, official statistics on baby names? On baby names? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, the USA does. Um, the USA, how are we different from the USA? I'm trying to think. Um, the, yeah, the USA has official data going back to like 1906 or something. Um, so we have every baby name given to more than three babies since 1997. So we've got rich data, but for the last like 25 years, the USA has much richer data going back much further. Um, there's a woman called Laura Wattenberg in the States who's an expert on this, and she has every country's data. So talk to her. <laughs> uh, William Wallace used to work in the cabinet office, and I've, this is the first time I come when I'm listening. And incidentally, um, since when you go to the registrar in lo your local authority, they have the lists of most popular names up all the way around. There may be a feedback going oh. on. <laughs> um, I, I remember a conversation in the cabinet office some years ago about whether we really needed to carry on with the census mm -hmm. um, because so much data was being collected. But Actually, the origins of the census are in, the, in trying to decide what were the important questions we should be now be asking. Mm. Uh, has the design of the coming census, so far as you know, got some of these questions in it? Uh, and how do you push for further questions and further census? For example, how much does your family pay in rent? Each week is a very obvious one one could put in. Uh, I would imagine there are people in the room better qualified to answer that than I am. <laughs> I don't know, I'm afraid. Um, I, yeah, I don't know enough about that, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I mean, the lay, the, there's a survey on rental levels, which is the uh, English household survey, I think, so that would have some data in. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right, the census is a key point for a lot of this data. Great. Uh, next set of questions. Uh, we've got one over there. Any more? And one down here as well. Um, so 
really interesting, thank you. And the work that we do at the National Audit Office, often we do find that there's data missing. Um, the response we get from departments is it's not our job to monitor it, mm -hmm. particularly some of the services that you touched on are within the responsibility of local authorities, um, but they are under-resourced, overstretched. How do you think we can tackle the ability to, and the need to generate this type of data without putting more pressure on them? Uh, that's a great question. Um, obviously, all data comes with costs. I think the key thing is the costs are going down and down and down and down, down all the time. Um, so for me, the key thing is at the point where you're designing your systems, thinking about data collection at that point, so you're engineering it into databases at that point. I mean, that's, you know, there's a transformation project going across, across local government, so it, but it's about thinking about it early on at the point where you're literally designing your databases and commissioning them and make sure you own the data at that point. <coughs> Hartley Miller, two things you might like to comment on. One is the missing numbers where the numbers are required in order to check whether the other numbers are credible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that's a very serious part, particularly if you're going to move in the direction of modeling situations. And I, I, perhaps a little bit of sympathy on the embarrassing side. Um, some numbers are also relevant to what was just said, said just now. Very unlikely to be all that good. Mm -hmm. So when it may, it may, may be embarrassing, not in the sense that it's going to undermine policy, but simply that you just wouldn't like to have something down on paper that you know is going to be such rubbish. Uh, I'll comment on the second one first. I mean, I think that is the most common concern in government about releasing data, that people don't want to release data that's imperfect or misleading. And I think being on the other side of that, people would generally rather have imperfect data but have it caveated. That's more useful, I think. Um, on the first one, do you have a kind of example of that in mind? Um, not, not, not instantly, but probably there's something to do with number of vets and the density of cats per square okay. kilometer. <laughs> um, basically, basically, if you try to make a model of any social situation, then you're clearly going to be looking at the interactions of different number series, and some of them are going to throw up inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing is we're moving towards a world where actually you can collect all the data all the time at no cost. So that's what we should be thinking about to this extent. Great. Unless somebody wants to ask a question with 18 seconds to go. It's a bit of a challenge. No, I think that's the perfect place to end it. Anna, thank, thank you very you much indeed. Last but not least, I'm just going to waffle ever so slightly while we change the slides over. Very nearly there. Brilliant. I can carry on going with the freedom of information puns if that would be No, nobody wants that. If you do want to listen to that chart, incidentally, we did sonify it on the Institute for Government podcast a few weeks ago. It ends up sounding a bit like free jazz. So um, I would recommend having a look through our Twitter feeds and uh, going to Inside Briefing on the Institute for Government website. We try to get a bit of data on there from time to time. Is this where we start the jokes about tech and AV, everyone? <laughs>
I can see the slides, they're there. Yeah. It's the oldest, most boring joke in the room. <laughs> that usually doesn't stop me, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. And with that fanfare, <laughs> um, I'd like to welcome to the stage Steve. Hello. So, hi, everyone. Uh, and I'm the person standing between you and refreshments uh, over there. And, uh, and so I will try not to use all the eight minutes, but I probably will. So this is about ourselves within government. We, ha we have a job to make data useful, both in, you know, for the services that are being delivered by government and those who are the policymakers, but actually almost more importantly for each, for each other. How are the questions about reusing data and how, how that can be, be done usefully and ethically across government? And so just a bit about myself and my journey inside the civil service, because I only showed up two months ago. You probably hear from my American accent, I actually had to naturalize and take up the job um, which not everyone has to do. Um, uh, I actually came uh, from a uh, consultancy background, working for the public sector and doing strategies for towns and cities across the UK and Ireland for a number of years. And, eventually, and that was mostly in the built environment and doing urban design. And I got to the point where those who have data are like beating us over the head with design with their civil engineering traffic stats and their um, quantity surveyors stats on return on investment, so I decided to go join them and go do a PhD uh, over in UCL where I worked in housing with housing statistics uh, during that time and after a few years of being a postdoc in the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis and inside the uh, Center for Transport Studies, wound up in City Hall uh, writing the mayor's data, uh, digital and, and um, technology strategy uh, during that time. Boris Johnson was there at the very beginning of my time. And so I, I, I'm back in the hands of some of his advisors or around, the, around the buildings as well. And two months ago, I decided to come in into the civil service as well. So what I'm not talking about today, data adequacy, transition period. It's another lecture. Also not talking about this, this thing. That's coming next week, they say in the press. Not talking about this either. <laughs> Although I have been spending a day a week hire, uh, interviewing people uh, because I'm forming a, a new team within, uh, within the civil service. I'd love to talk to you about all the great things with APIs and, and technical data standards, but the government digital service has plenty of lectures on that for you. Love to talk to you about the national data strategy. Surprise, surprise, I'm not the national data strategy team. The, I'm actually working on what the government is doing to invest now. Uh, across its departments and getting the public sector uh, to, to invest as well in making data useful uh, for their services and for policy making. And, and I'd love to talk about GDPR and compliance, but we don't have time for that. Or, on, uh, on, or the, re the recent review and online targeting. Love to talk about that, so let's focus a bit. So first, how much data actually is useful uh, around government? Just shout some numbers. Like, how, how, how much do we have that actually is useful? 5%. More counted today. 
Oh, we don't, we don't have time for that. Next. <laughs> don't have time. Okay. The definition, that's actually quite a good, quite a good one uh, because what people have said before, and this is actually isn't for government, is that one study said half of a percent was, an, was actually analyzed. Another says actually it's a skills problem. We just have data scientists that are spending all their time cleaning and not actually spending time doing data science. So they're bad numbers. And we ask ourselves what are the risks and benefits that are out there, of course, looking about decisions that are being made by politicians. So this, these are my big stakeholders. We think about how we use the data for service design across uh, governments and local authorities. You think about evidence. We just heard a load of uh, talk about the UK Statistical Agency. They're a big stakeholder myself as well. Another stakeholder is sort of value. Like what is the difference between how tech thinks about value, the products and services they make, and how government thinks about how data supplies uh, that, that value and how we actually get value from that data. And then we have the whole question of what is the whole value ecosystem uh, in government and our interaction with the wider economy about how we make our data useful to ourselves and maybe uh, to other people. And so the question, what are the challenges? Well, data is a strategic asset, but it's unexhausted and it's, reu and it's reusable. It's not like there is a data set and somebody has exclusive access to it and they can just use it forever. And, the, and, and, it's not, and, it's, and you can actually hand it to another person. And so how you treat, treat uh, data strategic asset in government is much different than the other kind of assets you have, which are kind of land that can always be once a piece of, uh, uh, um, and other things like that. And of course, leadership around data is not an easy task. And you can see Gavin behind you shouting, we must act now <laughs> in the background. And then funding, that the, you have the whole shiny and new versus fixing the plumbing. It's been a great campaign that's been happening inside the Ministry for Housing and Local Government. Um, I'd love to just, them to stick with CLG, uh, but it's a mouthful. Um, about fixing the plumbing and the local digital declaration. Of course, a big issue around data quality. A huge challenge that it's been before. By the way, Helen Roberts from the NAO is smiling at this because these, this is most, a lot of this is taken from a report that they had, they had done and everyone has, doesn't have a bad word about the evidence and the amounts of stating the problems that we have in government. Um, around, data, around data standards, um, there's many different problems and challenges that that we have are making sure that we're just talking about the same data or making sure we're talking about the same person or about the same object uh, that we have. And of course, there's IT legacy. This is actually the government's own shared services strategy saying how it's, Im it's embedding, how it's paying for all these different uh, providers and making sure that uh, they're, they're, they're uh, buying, buying Oracle and SAP uh, together. And of course, the easy way out is to say access is denied. And the understanding of the Digital Economy Act, I actually spent a lot of time uh, working inside City Hall talking about how we could reuse uh, the Information Sharing Gateway, which is a template for data sharing developed by Cum uh, Cumbria and Lancashire. I didn't hear the word Digital Economy Act used once during that time, which is worrying. And of course, working in silos, we accept that we do it, but how do we actually share the cost of data extraction uh, in, in the same proportion as the benefits that we get from it. Talk about data collection and the cost of it going down, cost of data extraction not going down so quickly. So in the last minute, what now? What has the government actually said since it's come into power? 
actually said something last Friday, buried here in something called the Treasury Minutes, which is our response to the Public Accounts Inquiry, Public Accounts Committee Inquiry into the use of data across government. Came out on Friday. What we said we would do, here's Gavin back saying that we must now, we actually committed to say, uh, making a plan that actually saying what priorities, milestones, and accountabilities across government for solving the data problem. We said we were going to investigate mandating, mandating a consistent approach across government. This is an example of mandating a consistent approach on the digital space that happened in GovDataUK a, a few years ago. And we said we investigate ways to monitor compliance and making sure that that consistent approach has been followed. And we also said that if we're going to sweep away legacy IT, it actually results in more useful data and simply just replicating the same problems with a new set of suppliers or a, 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 a more distributed set of suppliers. So it's not an official consultation. We just released this on Friday. But do tell us. These are things we've committed to doing to make data more useful in government. And, and, and it's great to actually have even though it's buried on page 30 of the Treasury Minutes about something that's coming from DCMS and the Cabinet Office, that, that, that we have something public to, to be able to say what we're actually taking action on right now. Thank you, Steve. I'd like I'm about to do my Lord Kitchener pose again by pointing at the audience. <laughs> we did live in this building for a few months in, anyway. Um, let's take some more questions. Final round. Who would like to go first? We've got one there. Any more in the first round of questions? And one there as well. So let's start with those first two. Hello, uh, Tom Rintoul, Social Finance. You talked about mandation and you talked about monitoring compliance. And maybe if one of the spaces we might do that was around data standards, what would your thoughts be on appropriate ways to create those standards in the first place? Who do you involve, how, and how do you govern them as they might change? Are we doing multiple? Yeah, we can do multiple. I definitely keep that one in my head. Yeah. It's actually pretty much the same question. Yeah. Um, so uh, in page 30 of the report around data governance and standards, what actually have you announced? And can you just maybe unpack that a little bit more for us? I wasn't quite clear on the detail. OK. Uh, so that is basically saying the detail, the detail needs to be done is, is, is actually what, uh, what's happening. And so on the data standard side, side of things, we need to make a decision how deep to go into data standards and decide what is really the critical enabling data that, 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 that we need to concentrate effort on. So at a very, very high level, and this is something we already said that we were looking at on um, on data quality and thinking about our inventory of data is if we're going to say that there's an absolute kind of minimum level of talking about the, met the metadata, like the description of what you have, because I think a lot of times government databases just don't actually talk about what they have, and it doesn't enable those who have the tools to match that data together to, uh, to do that and make, it, and make it useful. You don't have to go as far as designating a schema with all the different field codes and exact descriptors that are there in every single case. So I think that we need to make a decision policy-wise uh, what, what's critical, how much effort to put into it, and what's, what's the universal uh, side as well. Great. Next set of questions. 
We've got the other person on the slide that you've yeah. just seen a couple of times. Yeah. Hello, yeah, Simon Wellington. You might remember me from your slide deck. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah you can tell I've been here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask, um, so trying to get departments to release metadata and what data they hold and this sort of stuff is something that DCMS has, has looked at before. Um, and I'm a strong believer that if departments don't have a good incentive and like a personal value to get out of doing it, it's hard to get them to do it. Um, do you think there is a personal value to doing that sort of work for departments, given that it's going to cost them a lot of them a lot of time and money because they just don't have that information internally either? Yeah. So what the inquiry said last year, and that's something that a lot of people uh, said that they, they agreed with, is that the cost of, like, that departments didn't have the incentives to, to do this because the cost of extraction, they bore themselves, the cost of the, the risk of compliance, they bore themselves as the data holder. And so the easy way out, as I said before, is just not, not, not to do it, is, is, the, is the easy option. And so our job within government is, 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 is to A, make it, make it not the easy option, but, but, but approach it by either saying, we can share the, the benefits can be shared, and how we actually develop funding to enable that to happen. And, and, and of course, there is the investigation of if hearts and minds and gathering people together hasn't been working, how, that we should be investigating a more mandatory approach uh, to do that, and that's something that we said, said that we would do, uh, and, and, that's, and that's directly in response to um, a line from the Public, Account, uh, Public Accounts Committee uh, and the NEO report saying that uh, the hearts and minds approach has been limited in, in success, and so, but it didn't say that the execution of that is the, is the problem. It, it didn't, and it didn't say whether it was just the concept of that that was the problem. And that's something that we need to investigate. You know, if we're gonna say that something's mandatory in the future, uh, we need to get to the bottom of that. If, if it's just the whole concept of getting people to collaborate, which is, which is a problem, or it's been the ex execution of it. Great. <clears throat> We've definitely got time for another round of questions. Who'd like to go next? We've got one there. Any more in this round? I remember being told five years ago that the different legal frameworks for collecting, holding, and sharing data across different departments in Whitehall was an obstacle to effective data analysis and sharing. Yeah. Has that now been solved? If it hasn't, is your unit concerned with sorting that out? We're very concerned with sorting that out because we're in charge of implementing the Digital Economy Act and concerned that awareness of it is very, is very limited and people are still using gateways from the past that were meant to be turned off in favor of using the Digital Economy Act instead in those gateways. And so we, are, we have a, a big job to do of working with government departments to increase that awareness and understanding. Um, I'm actually having um, uh, consultants and pollsters from uh, Kantar coming in the room tomorrow to start actually gathering the detail of why that awareness has not happened, what are the use cases within departments, of what the obstacles and barriers they face to do that. So those in the room that might, uh, might find themselves uh, an answering some questions and uh, being interviewed by them over the next six weeks or so. Uh, next set of questions. We've got one right at the back. Anybody else? 
Sam from American Potential. Um, Digital Economy Act has had zero projects go through its public service delivery board last year. Uh, there weren't even any proposed, yet the plan is to expand it to take medical records, which is currently blocked by primary legislation. Do you think that's a good idea? I have made, I, I'm not, I, there is no moves right now to make medical records part of the Digital Economy Act right, uh, right now within, within governments, no. Read the Public Service Delivery Board minutes where it says that they're consulting on it. Well, that's, uh, okay. That, so those, those minutes are true that they've been consulting on it and that's, that's something which has been, was done, uh, done during last year. Been, been said by those who answered the Public Accounts Committee inquiry to say what are the ways that we can actually improve the, um, the Digital Economy Act. And one of the ways that was, was said, said to us was the connections between people's health and the other services that they're having in the housing sector and other, and other, and other kinds of needs that they have. It's such a, that they said that it's such a big in, indicator that we should be con that we should be, con be considering it. Now, acting on that is is something that is still is still still not being done at, at the moment. Great, and we do have one final hand up down here. If you keep incredibly short. Yes, Anthony Miller. Um, is your metadata going to include uh, information about how reliable and trustworthy the information is, and will that be fed up to ministers who are formulating policy? No, that's a very good question to ask people about how trustworthy they think their data is and, and what the quality that, that is. So we, we will, I mean, that, that's something where when we talk about the completeness, uniqueness, like, the, 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 like how people rate their own data quality, that's something that um, we need to actually look at how that, how that, goes, into the, how that goes into the metadata. So that's a very good question, and that relates to how, how we actually develop a way of judging data quality, yeah. Excellent. Steve, thank you very yep. much indeed. Yeah. So one thing that Steve didn't get quite right is that I'm actually the last person between you and the drinks outside, um, but I'll keep it very short. As I said, please do join us on the landing, and if you hang around long enough, we'll also go to the pub. Uh, a few things very quickly. Um, first of all, we've got lots of events coming up at the Institute over the next few weeks. Do take a look at our website. One that might be of particular interest, building on the freedom of information from earlier, is about how transparent government contracting should be. So if you're interested in this, you may well be interested in that. Um, Steve mentioned the National Audit Office report on uh, data across government. We had Yvonne Gallagher talking about that at a previous Databytes, so you can go to bit.ly slash ifgdatabytes and find the video of that talk. So all that then remains for me to say is three very big thank yous. First of all, to ADR UK for supporting tonight's event. We're very grateful. And if anybody in the audience would like to support a future one, please do grab us afterwards. Second, thank you to all of you for coming tonight and asking some brilliant questions. And finally, please join me in thanking our fantastic speakers tonight. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>